very interesting just to see how deeply you all have resonated with this book. Um, honestly, a little surprising. This was one of those deals where, you know, the first week I just kind of felt like, um, you know, there needed to be a statement like, welcome to Resurrection Presbyterian. We're not messing around. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, and then just kind of expected you to endure uh, as you braced yourself for the strangeness of this book, um, for the seeming uh, confusion at best. That would be a, a very redemptive way to think about Ecclesiastes, but the truth is it's extremely discomforting um, and very unnerving and unsettling, but you've resonated deeply with that. And speaking of Matt, who works with college students on a regular basis, he said that his students are feeling the same way, and it's not that we don't have any young people here. We do have some students with us, and then obviously we have middle school and high school students that sit in here with us. And I thought, well, you know, it's pretty interesting given the primary demographic in here, which is not students, uh, yet his almost exclusive, his exclusive demographic is students, yet there is this joint resonance with it. And I thought, well, at least these two different demographics resonate on one thing together. And that is, I think we deeply appreciate the authenticity of the book of Ecclesiastes. We really appreciate that here we have a preacher and a teacher telling things about life the way they are. And furthermore, it's in the Bible unapologetically in the Bible. And I think that particularly at this day and time, not that it wasn't always like this, but particularly at this day and time, people long, even though the word has been overused that probably negates itself um, in and of itself when we use the word authentic, but in a true sense, apart from the cynical and sarcastic way that we could take on it, we really do long for reality. We long for authenticity. We long to hear something, to read something that resonates with our experience. And it's so deeply encouraging that we have this here in the scriptures. That we have a book that seems to conclude something that many Christians have not yet come to conclude. Which is that God does give us more than we can handle. God does give us more than we could handle. And I could give many evidences of that throughout the scriptures, but probably the crowning evidence I could give of that was, I'm pretty sure it's safe to conclude when Jesus was in the garden and he was headed to the cross, he would say, this is more than I can handle. In God's providence and in his goodness and in his grace, eternally speaking, he seems to almost regularly, give us more than we can handle. One of my favorite singer-songwriters is a guy named Jason Isbell, and Jason Isbell's fascinating on a number of different levels. He can shred a guitar. He's an incredible lyricist. He also has a great voice, so he's kind of like the total package. He sings in the folk Americana, a little bit of a rockabilly type realm. But another thing that's fascinating about Jason Isbell is he's a recovered drug addict. And so when he writes and when he speaks, a lot of his songs are in the nature of a memoir. And it's pretty fascinating to hear and to read what he writes. But he's got a song that's on a recent album of his that's particularly fascinating, and it's entitled Last of My Kind. And at one point towards the end of the song, as he's reflecting on his own life and speaking that he's the last 
of his kind, he says, my mom says God won't give you too much to bear. My mom says God won't give you too much to bear. He says, that might be true in Arkansas, but I'm a long, long way from there. I'm a long, long way from there. And that whole world's a lonely and faded picture in my mind. Am I the last of my kind? Well, I think we all could conclude we're a long, long way from there. We're a long, long way from living life that we feel like we can handle. We're a long, long way from living life that seems doable or fixable or formulaic. And as a result of that reality, we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and oddly enough, we resonate. Not only resonate with a joint experience, but resonate in an odd way with some sense of comfort. It's embedded and somewhat hidden in the book, I admit. It's not explicitly redemptive. There's no clear Christ-centeredness to Ecclesiastes. I've said before that the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, does not take us through a journey of redemptive history. Yet, embedded in the midst of discomfort, we find comfort. And we're going to see that particularly in our passage this morning. So stand with me, if you will, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that seems to resonate with the notion that we all in our lives are a long, long way from experiencing things circumstantially that we can handle. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has yet to be born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work Come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You might remember when China 
hosted the Olympics, the Summer Olympics in 2008. If you're like me, when I say China hosted the Olympics in 2008, you probably think that cannot have been 12 years ago. It was 12 years ago. China hosted the 2008 Olympics. There was a number of things, including the Olympics themselves and, of course, the sporting events. But like all Olympics, there are other things surrounding the actual event itself. And many stories came out of China through different structures they built. You might remember the main stadium from that Olympics was called the Bird's Nest, this pretty fantastic architectural Feature. You also might remember different stories that came out with regard to what China did to project an image to the world that was not actually completely accurate of who they were. Many stories were written and exposed that they had moved homeless people off the streets. They had sought to clear, if you will, what one might consider the human riffraff for the world to see a clean, beautiful place. One of the things that came out of China hosting the Olympics was just how hyper they were about control. And let me interject at this moment before we ethnocentrically throw another country under the bus. You know we are China, right? Like individually. We don't like riffraff in our lives either. We don't like things to be unpleasant. We don't like things to look unpleasant. We don't like things to be unpleasant. And as a result of not liking things to look unpleasant or be unpleasant, as a a result of us not wanting to experience discomfort, we move into a sense of hyper-control and power. Well, in my opinion, with regard to what I know at least of China in the Olympics, that kind of obsession with power and control really reached its pinnacle as they sought to move aggressively into what had been toyed with for a long time, which is a weather modification program. Has anyone ever heard of countries seeking to modify the weather? There's an, it's, pretty a fa- it's a pretty fascinating experience to look into historically. The U.S. allegedly, I don't know if it's allegedly at this point, but the U.S. allegedly in the Vietnam War commissioned an operation called Operation Popeye, believe it or not, Uh, late 60s, early 70s, around the Ho Chi Minh Trail, seeking to modify the weather and have the clouds in this atmosphere rend more rain and more storms in order to make this trail in this part of the country more impassable as a tactic of war. Other countries have experienced weather modification as it relates to drought. That would make sense, right? Other countries have experienced it, you know, with regard to how it would affect agriculture and farming. But China in 2008 spent hundreds of millions of dollars. And in fact, they continue to do so seeking to modify the weather. It's pretty complicated. Of course, I don't understand all the dynamics, the physics and the chemics that go into it, but among other things, they release an armada of artillery and aircraft and shoot chemicals into clouds. You know, the water and the the atmosphere is always filled with water. And so what they're seeking to do, essentially, as they seek to modify the weather, is to really do one of two things. Stop, for example, the rain from coming, which sounds very attractive right now, by the way living in Knoxville, or to have the clouds pour forth rain 
in a more urgent and expedient way to wring them of all the moisture and then create a sense of controlled dryness, for example, over the bird's nest in 2008. Well, the conclusion is, among experts, no one has been able to effectively and consistently with any substance modify the weather. But that doesn't stop people from trying. We actually seek to modify the weather. Not so much in a way, though if we had the resources to shoot chemicals into the clouds with airplanes, I have a feeling that many of us would. But our weather modification looks more like an obsession over apps on our phone that tell us about the weather. And our obsession about making plans about the weather. If it does this, it's going to do that. We've scheduled this vacation here, but it says it's going to rain. Should we shift? How much can we get back on that flight if we shift over here because of the weather in this? Some more than others, and I would be the one that's more than others, tends to obsess about these things with a semblance of control. And here's the irony about the semblance of control, and we can move away from weather and just think about the desire for control in general. We wrongly assume this. If we could, therefore, control all things, or if we, therefore, could know all answers, if we could take away ambiguity, if we could take away lack of control, if we could exercise more power and have all the answers, that then conclusion would be we would be satisfied. We would be happy. We would be content. And Ecclesiastes makes us ask the question, are you sure? Are you sure you really want to know all the answers? You think knowing all the answers would give you the satisfaction that you crave? You think being able to control all things, even the weather, would bring a sense of satisfaction It would quench your desires. It wouldn't. The truth is, Ecclesiastes causes us to face the fact that we're not in control. And as a result of not being in control, we need to concede the fact that we're not in control. And the result of not being in control and not having power and experiencing discomfort, and this is the unique thing about Ecclesiastes, is true for the Christian and the non-Christian. This is where the most predominant notion of the way that people uh, interpret Ecclesiastes is honestly misguided. People most often, to the extent that they've looked at Ecclesiastes, but most likely not studied it in depth, essentially say Ecclesiastes is a message that says, life apart from Christ is meaningless. And then the implication is, life with Christ is full of meaning and answers and control and power and satisfaction and comfort. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, with or without Christ, we have to navigate a life that is discomforting, that lacks control and that lacks power. And my question, Ecclesiastes' question to us is, Do we concede that? Do we concede that everything cannot be fixed? Even through morality. 
even through religion, even through really good theology that might even be reformed. And it's so nice and it's so neat systematically and formulaically, which is really rich and good and helps us get a good understanding of who God is, but it doesn't fix everything. And that's hard. And if we can't sit in this reality, if we can't concede this, then we don't understand what's going on in Ecclesiastes. really just want us to see two simple things from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today. I want us to see the error in cultivating chaos, and I want us to see the comfort, relatively speaking, in cultivating contentment. You see, the title of the sermon is The Vanity of Self-Sufficiency. And you see the vanity of self-sufficiency throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. You see it in some pretty significant ways in Ecclesiastes 4 as it talks about the loneliness and the isolation apart from other people. As it talks about in Ecclesiastes 4 how discomforting it is to be busy and to lack quietness. How discomforting it is to be selfish and to seek power, and the result of seeking power, oppress other people. You see, being self-sufficient and self-seeking is a vain search. And we see the vanity of that search in our lives, or in this text at least, as we see the preacher, or the teacher of Ecclesiastes, talking about what it looks like and enumerating those who cultivate chaos. Those who cultivate chaos and therefore are self-seeking and don't understand the vanity of self-sufficiency wield power in a way, according to verses 1 through 3 of Ecclesiastes 4. Cultivating chaos means wielding power in a way that oppresses other people. You see, power, like a number of things, for example, money, biblically speaking, is not in and of itself wrong or evil. And in fact, I think we can make a strong argument, biblically speaking, that it's not even sinful to desire power. The question is, why do you desire it and what do you want to do with it? And the answer is, for most of us, we desire it to serve ourselves. And what we want to do with it is become more self-sufficient. And in the midst of pleasing ourselves and being sufficient and dependent on ourselves... The only way to effectively do that is to oppress other people. To oppress other people's opinions who stand in our way. To belittle other people through shame and guilt, even our loved ones. To use power to create systems that don't let people who have experienced systemic oppression really have a viable way for another way. Yet power is so attractive to us. But if we're seeking power, we're seeking ourselves. And if we're seeking ourselves, then we're cultivating chaos. Another way that the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about chaos being cultivated is through envy. Which is very linked and similar to power. It's also driven by the self. It's also another tactic of self-sufficiency, and it's another description of cultivating chaos. Something that will stop us from conceding 
The vanity of self-sufficiency. That, that's kind of the goal today. We are seeking to concede with redemptive resignation that self-sufficiency is a vain hope. That's the goal of today. Things that get in the way of us conceding that self-sufficiency is a vain hope is being power hungry and oppressing other people in the midst of our desire for power and our right to happiness. Show me a Bible verse that tells you you have a right to happiness. And then find another one that says your right to happiness can come at the expense of other people. You won't find one. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, this preacher, is lamenting this in a sad way. He's basically saying, look, we live in such a world where people are so power hungry and people are so oppressed. I mean, he concludes this. It would be better to not be born. Like, what if we just read verses 1 through 3 and closed in prayer? I keep thinking that at different points throughout Ecclesiastes. So you cultivate power, and it's not conceding that you cultivate or that you don't think that being self-sufficient is vain, but also you cultivate envy. I mean, that's what it says as we move through this text. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work, you know, and Ecclesiastes talks a lot about work, in some good ways and some bad ways. And we can reflect more deeply, but for now it's just a point within another point. But he says, our work is characterized by envying our neighbor. I mean, how much of our work, whether it be inside or outside the home, whether you get paid or not paid, is driven by a sense of one-upmanship and a sense of putting other people down and a sense of feeling better about ourselves because at least we're not like that. Have you seen the way that she handles her kids? Or we can take it the other way. It's just a way of comparison, right? And we see someone, let's stick on parenting, a blogger, right? Someone that writes a blog. As if the blog gives you a, perf- gives you a perfect realistic picture of what life is like always. Or better yet, let's just scroll through people's Facebook pictures. That's a real like picture and snapshot. Into- I mean, they're real pictures, Right? We think. And we envy. We do this, and our work is often driven by enviness or envying others. And so, this is a way that we cultivate chaos. We cultivate chaos by wielding power to oppress other people. We cultivate chaos also by envying others. This envy actually leads to a deep dissatisfaction. With our work. And verses 5 and 6 talk about the dissatisfaction in a little more detail. Verse 5 is an interesting text here. It says, The fool folds his hands and eats his flesh. Now, I don't know if that's immediately obvious to you when you read this text or hear this text what it means. It was definitely not immediately obvious to me what the writer means when he says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. But remember, he's talking about work. And he's talking about toil. And he's asking the question, who am I doing this for? What is my work all about? And then he essentially says, an aspect of work that has fallen in this world is when people are lazy. 
You know, people talk, and I think it's good and right, culturally speaking, to ask the question to keep us in check. At the end of your life, are you really going to ask yourself, or are you really going to conclude, you know, I wish I had spent more time at the office. And that's a good, that's a good question, and, and that relates to something else that's not laziness, and that's workaholism, or workism, as we mentioned a few weeks ago in an article from the Atlantic magazine. But I read a commentator on this text says, Ecclesiastes does honor that by saying, nah, yeah, we need to think about it. At the end of our life, most likely, we're not going to say, you know, I wish I had spent more time at the office. I wish I had been on the road more. I wish I had taken another work trip. I wish I had made just a little bit more. Chances are you're not going to conclude that. But he says, Ecclesiastes also says, according to verse 5, which talks about laziness, You might get to the end of your life and say, you know, if you were lazy, that is, I wish I had have spent a little more time at the office. And that's the beauty of wisdom. What's the right thing? Because you see, we can err on one end of laziness. In the midst of doing that, we fold our hands, do nothing, and have to eat our own flesh. Why? Because we don't have money to buy food. Or... Verse 6 alludes to the opposite end of laziness as it relates to the brokenness of work, and it talks about busyness, workaholism, workism. And it gives us an alternative that we'll talk about in a minute, which is quietness. But let's just think right now about the negative aspect of verse 6, which is busyness. Being quick on our feet. I got a friend and a mentor who cultivates a lifestyle, who's a pastor, and and unfortunately, I can honestly say, these people are few and far between in my life that I actually know. That is, pastors that I would seek to emulate their own soul and self-care. This is an amazingly interesting occupational hazard for people in full-time ministry. To put at the altar, professionally, knowing God, with serving him. Many, many pastors serve God instead of love him and know him. But one of my friends who doesn't do this, and I'm grateful for him, gives this expression. He said, we need to have, we do not need to be quick on our feet. Quickness of feet creates chaos in the heart. But if we're slow on our feet, it creates stillness in the heart. And verse 6 talks about that, and we'll reflect on that in just a minute. But cultivating this chaos, a lack of conceding to our own self-sufficiency, is characterized by this power grab. It's characterized by envy. It's characterized by a dissatisfaction of work, whether it be through laziness or busyness. And then it ends with a dissatisfaction of riches. We see this in verses 7 and 8. And once again, this is not an unfamiliar theme in Ecclesiastes. We don't have time to go in depth into it today, but we'll have more time in weeks to come. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks. We're so busy accruing riches. We're so busy bowing down to the idol of work, that we never stop to contemplate and ask the question, who am I doing this for? Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, tells a story that was uh, relayed in a book by David Gibson that I'm reading on Ecclesiastes. And Matt Chandler talks about in his pastoral counseling, and he tells this in the midst of a series on Ecclesiastes, 
in the midst of his pastoral counts, and he said he's never talked to a woman who came in lamenting how much her life was in shambles because her dad dropped her off at school in a junkie car. He said, I've never had a woman come to me and say, you know, my life is a wreck because my parents couldn't pay for me to go on that school ski trip. Never once. But he said, I've had countless women, specifically, and pastoral conversations where they come and lament to me that their dad dropped them off at school never in his $150,000 car. And his dad, her dad not only paid for her, but he paid for the whole school to go on a ski trip, but never was around and never communicated love. For who am I toiling? What's the point? He concedes that there is no satisfaction in riches. Well, where do we find hope here? If the overarching idea is we've got to concede that self-sufficiency is vain, and we outline here, or he outlines, ways in which there is chaos that is cultivated through this vain search to be self-sufficient, what's the answer? Where's the hope? How can we cultivate contentment? How can we embrace the vanity of self-sufficiency? Verse 6 really is the key. Verse 6 stands like a beacon in the night of Ecclesiastes that is so beautiful. In the midst of all this insanity, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of contemplating oppression, systemic oppression, and the abuse of power, and all the other things that we've been envy, the dissatisfaction of riches, the dissatisfaction of work, where does this leave us? What do we do? A handful of quietness is better than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Are you a quiet person? I'm not asking whether you're introverted or extroverted. Do you know what quietness of soul is? Do you know that there's such thing as experiencing internal rest in the midst of external strife? Do we know how to be quiet? Ecclesiastes, as an overarching way, is an encouragement to be still and to be quiet, to bow to the mystery, to bow to the discomfort, to stop screaming. I mean, there's an appropriate time to scream at injustice and oppression. But generally speaking, in our souls, we need to be quiet thought about this yesterday as I was at the UT basketball game and I've shared before publicly and I don't have to go into great detail again that at times I can get a little worked up as it relates to officials. Not the only one in that context, thankfully. It's a little different than a soccer sideline at your uh, child's game where it's a little voice can stand out a little bit more. But I thought yesterday, how, how foolish. How foolish are we? And you've got like 19,000 people screaming, essentially the same content, but in different ways that they can't be heard at all. Just be quiet. 
Just shut up. He missed the call. What are you going to do about it? Like, seriously, do you think that, like, since he did not call walking 35 seconds ago, you screaming incessantly that he's going to somehow, number one, hear you, go back and change the call, and that call change is going to change the... What are we doing? That's what we do in life. It's something. We're outraged. We're uncomfortable. So we scream. And we cry. And that's okay. We do want justice, and that's a good thing. It's no fun to see the other team travel and it not be called, I admit. But be quiet. You see this principle supported throughout Scripture, and I really think it's where we find peace this morning. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There's a fantastic narrative in Luke chapter 10 with two women that Jesus loved very much, Mary and Martha. Martha, as Jesus came over, was super busy being a good southern woman, getting ready for entertaining, getting everything to look just right, straightening the Garden and Gun magazine on the coffee table, (laughs) fixing tea, getting food ready. And what was Mary doing? She's being lazy. She's just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. Like any good, self-righteous person, Martha demands for Jesus to do something about Mary, who's just sitting there. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you don't understand. Only one thing is necessary. It's to be still and to be quiet. And guess what? Mary has chosen the better thing. You see, it's better to have one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. Do we know how to cultivate quietness? You something very interesting with quietness. It's where we hear God speak most normatively. 1 Kings chapter 19 is a fascinating narrative of the prophet Elijah who's in a tight spot, let's say. People are rebelling He's doubting his calling. His relationship with God at this point feels tenuous to him. And he goes to God and he says, God, will you speak to me? And God says, yes, Elijah, I will speak to you. Go out to the mountain. Go out and stand at the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong and wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a low whisper. And Elijah heard the voice of the Lord. God, normatively, it seems, speaks in a whisper. And guess what it takes to hear a whisper? Quietness. Quietness in our mind, quietness in our soul, quietness literally. 
removing external chaos, dealing with internal chaos to move into a point where we're receptive to hear the voice of the Lord. Mark Buchanan, in his book, The Rest of God, says, God is teaching me quietness of heart. I didn't realize it until I started experiencing this, how clamorous and anxious my heart generally is. Inside, I'm a schemer. A constant chattering goes on in my head. I mutter to myself like Gollum. But as I quiet down, my soul does as well. Quietness allows room for God to speak or to be silent. Both are gifts. Quietness stops crowding the Holy Spirit, elbowing aside God's gentle presence. The end of striving makes room for dwelling. Audrey Assad sings, You liberate me from my noise and from my chaos, from the chains of a lesser law. You set me free. You liberate me from my own noise and my own chaos, from the chains of a lesser law. You set me free. In the silence of my heart, you speak. And it is there that I will know you and you will know me. In the silence of my heart, you speak. You satisfy me until I am quiet and confident. In the work of the Spirit, I cannot see. You satisfy me until I'm quiet and confident. In the work of the Spirit, I cannot see. In the silence of the heart, you speak. And that's really what we need. We need God to speak. We need God to speak words of comfort. We need God to whisper. Even if it's not okay right now, one day it will be okay. And we need that because we live in a chaotic world. The answer to the chaos is not self-sufficiency, but it's dependency. It's God's sufficiency that's manifested through a sense of quietness. I'll truncate the last point that summarizes the verses. The answer to the chaos is not only quietness, but it's community. You know, C.S. Lewis in a grief observed when his wife died, said he wanted people in his home not because he wanted to talk to them, but he just wanted to be around them. In fact, he didn't want them to talk to him, but he just wanted to be around them. Misery really does enjoy company in a deep way. And that's what these other verses testify to us. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of discomfort and questioning, what we need is quiet to allow personal peace, but what we also need is community. What can help us endure the vanity and insanity of this world? Other people. We need Emmanuel. The teacher doesn't tell us this. He doesn't point directly to Jesus, but surely we can. We need Jesus to be with us. I'm reminded of Daniel chapter 3, and I'll close with this. Daniel chapter 3, in the midst of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, a very famous story in the Old Testament, you have three servants of the Lord that are serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar, because he is self-sufficient, because he's a power-hungry person and he oppresses other people, is demanding for all people to bow down for him. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faithful to the Lord and they say they won't bow down to him. Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you into the fire and kill you. They said, that's fine, do whatever you have to do, but we're not bowing down. What gave them the power to do that? Do you think one of them could have done it alone? I think not. You know, the text tells us two people are strong, but a three-chord 
strand. It's not easily broken. You know what helped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego endure the chaos and the pain and the trouble in that moment in Daniel chapter 3? Each other. And then something really crazy happens in the text. I mean, if a three-chord strand is not easily broken, what would you think about a four-chord strand? Because you see, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar says, did we not put three people in the fire? But now I see four. And one of them looks like the son of the gods. Not only do we need other people in the midst of an oppressed, chaotic world, but we need Jesus. We need him to be with us in the midst of the fire just like he was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's close in prayer. Father.